listening to this message brought to you by Living Word Church. We trust that as you hear the Word of God preached, you'll be encouraged and equipped to love God and do His will. If you're looking for a church home, please feel free to visit our Sunday morning worship service at 10 a.m. or visit our website at www.livingwordchurch.cc. And now for our message. Uh, Good morning, everyone. I almost just want to have Jenny Fisher come back up and kind of preach a full sermon on just those few moments that she shared, because I felt like that was powerful. Amen. It's always amazing when God uses each of us to bring contribution to the morning service, and it doesn't always just have to come from the quote-unquote preacher, um, but that God is speaking to all of us, and he's telling us things, and he's saying, hey, encourage my people with this. And so, Jenny, I do want you to know that I was truly encouraged um, by what you shared this morning. Uh, As you all know, we are in a series, or you may or may not know, but we're in a series um, called A Bruised Reed. Um, And it is the idea that God cares deeply um, for the vulnerable. Uh, He has a heart and a passion and a love for for those who we need to reach out in care and we need to reach out in love. And, And he has done that and he has shown us an example of that, and he asks us to be like him. Well, this morning, we are going to continue in that series, and uh, we're going to talk about um, orphans and widows today. And that that is, those are people that are near and dear, that are close to the heart of God. And so if you don't mind, I want us just to pray um, and just give this time to the Lord, uh, and then we're just going to, we're going to dive in. Lord God, come to you as humbly as I know how. God, I come from a posture that says, God, unless you speak this morning, your people won't hear you. So God, I'm asking, God, right now that you would come into this place. God, we've braved the storm and the weather and the rain to be here. God, so that you would speak. God, open our ears, God. Give us ears to hear. But God, beyond that, God, I pray that you would give us hands to work and feet to go where you might call us this morning. And so God, we just receive from you. God, I pray that each one would sit with their hands wide open, God, saying, whatever you ask of me, Lord God, I am willing. And so God, I know that this will be a special morning. And so God, we give it to you, all of it. Thank you for the worship and thank you for our giving and thank you for what's happened so far, God. But we ask for an even greater deposit your grace and love to us as your spoken word is given this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to continue this series on this bruise, this idea of a bruised reed. You know, he talks about a bruised reed in Isaiah 42 that will not break and a smoldering wick that he will not stuff out. Talks about just the gentleness and the delicateness of God and how he loves those who who may be battered and broken and bruised, who, who may be um, without or lacking, that his heart reaches deeply um, for those. And again, like I said before, we are told to, to be like him. And we have to remember that we are Christ's ambassadors, right? As that, I mean, that's what his word tells us. And he says that we are Christ's ambassadors as though he is making his appeal through us. So one of the ways that we're going to talk about that God is making an appeal through us is in how we care for the most vulnerable of those. 
those who are orphans, those who are widows. And we're going to run through, I just want to run through a number of verses with you really quick because, you know, I want us to realize that this is not just me speaking here, that God has a really, I mean, he says so much in the scripture about this. Psalm 68.5 says, a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows is God in his holy dwelling. That's our God. Psalm 146.9 says, the Lord watches over the foreigner, we talked about last week, and sustains the fatherless and the widow but he frustrates the ways of the wicked. Exodus 22, 22, really simple. Do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. Does anybody know what the rest of that says, the next couple verses? I didn't put it on the slide, but I was reading it, and I was just like, ooh. Verse 23 says, if you do and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will be aroused, and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will become widows and your children fathers. So I don't know if anybody really wanted to know just how passionate our God is about the widow and the fatherless. Beware if you take advantage of it. Isaiah 117, learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. That's our God. And we are called to be like him. And in the New Testament, this is the verse that we're going to kind of take the, the rest of our time from this morning, is this, James 1.27. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after the orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. I want to read it one more time. Religion that our God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after the orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Now, why does this matter to me? I specifically spoke and asked Dave as we were planning this series and talking about this series, I said, that's the one I want. If you're gonna give me a choice, I wanna speak on that one because it is very personal for me. And I may have shared this story before, you may, you may have heard it, I kind of, my life is kind of an open book sometime when I, when I stand up here to, to share, but um, I was 16 years old. So for any of our teens, our young, you know, teenagers that are here, hear me on this. I was 16 years old and I was working at a camp and I wasn't working at a camp by choice, I was working at a camp by force because my mom wanted to get me out of the neighborhood. So she told that camp director, you may, some of you may have heard, said, hey, I don't care what you give him, he can volunteer, I don't care what, but let him come to camp for the summer because he shouldn't be around the neighborhood. And they said, fine. So that was when I was 15, I started. I was 16, it was my second summer, because she's like, good, let's keep doing it. <laughs> and he gave me a job, and that was, that was my job, to work at camp. And caught often, this was a, a camp run by the Salvation Army, so it was, it, was, it was like five bucks for kids to come for a week, you know, and they qualified for Title 20. But we also took a fair number of wards of the state. So we had a voucher program with wards of the state that if a kid was in foster care uh, by the state DCFS, that they would get free, uh, a free week at camp, essentially. Um, and so I worked at camp and you know several sessions would have, but we'd have maybe 20, 30, 40, sometimes 50 kids that were wards of the state. Well, at 16 years old, still a punk myself, really didn't, as a Christian camp, but I, the Lord was kind of a, a distant 15th in my life at the time. And there was a young man who came to camp. 
got off the bus, didn't know him from anything. He was a, he was a small kid, maybe you know, about 10 years old. He was a white kid, and, and he was, there was nothing about him that was really even nothing that I would notice. But for some reason, this kid was attached to me from day one. Now, here I am, a 16-year-old punk kid who's only there because he's kind of forced to be there. You know, I mean, I enjoyed it. It was cool to kind of be away, but it was, like, not my choice because all my friends were back home, and all of a sudden, I've got this shadow. And that's literally what they called him. If they saw me and didn't see him, they were like, hey, where's your shadow? And we, didn't, we got along. We didn't have any problem. He just, he just felt like he just wanted, I don't know, there was, I still haven't figured it out. Anyway, last day at camp comes and we're loading the kids up on the buses and we're getting them ready to go. And all of a sudden, this young man, Ronnie, we couldn't find. And everybody's like, where is he? So everybody's spread out and they're looking around the camp and somebody finds him. And all of a sudden I hear everybody now yelling, and instead of saying, get on the bus, get on the bus, they're yelling for me. Yeah, come here. So I go and I'm, he's on the side of the gym, kind of woods over there and he's on the side of the gym and this kid is just he doesn't want to get on the bus. Say so he's not going to talk to anybody. He just wanted you. 16 years old. And I go over to him and I say, come on, we got to get on the bus. I don't want to go. I don't want to go. I know it's hard. You know, other kids cry. It's okay. It'll be good. You'll go back. And obviously, I didn't know a whole lot of his story and the foster care that he was, you know, in. And he didn't divulge that. This wasn't one of those grand, like, moments where he divulged his, you know, I'm, you know, there's some abuse or anything. It was, it was nothing like that. He looked at me and literally said, 16 years old, I wish you were my dad so I wouldn't have to go. There's not a lot of things that break a 16-year-old, but that one got me. And all I could think in my mind was, I wish I could. I would. I wish I could be your dad. I wish I could take you from right here at this camp where you're crying on the side of a building, about to get on the bus to go back to God knows what. I wish I could, at 16 years old, make the decision to say, you know what, I'm going to step up and I'm going to be the dad for this kid because that's desperately what he wants. And I don't know why me, because I didn't think I was all that cool. I knew I wasn't all that good, but there was something. Church, God birthed in me in that moment, even before I fully surrendered my life to Christ, that I knew that one day when God gave me ability that I would adopt. At 16, if you're a young person in this room, let me tell you, if God puts something in you now, that's not a joke. I have given my life to this serving young people and loving on them and, and trying to be a good example of them. So why is this so important to me? Because I believe that this should be the heart of the church, not the heart of Andrew. That our collective heart needs to be for those who are in desperate need. You see, sometimes we see a situation, maybe we'll see a situation like, like this Ronnie that I was telling you about, and this was a long time ago. I haven't been 16 for quite a few years. And we may get run through a series like, see a person like that, and we'll get, we may have sympathy. So we put up the definition there for Sympathy, an expression of or an understanding and care of someone else's suffering. 
So sometimes we see experiences, we may see a, a, a young person or we may see an, an elderly person who lives alone, who's, who's maybe a widow, and, and we, we feel sympathy for them. Oh, man. We may even go a step deeper and we may feel empathy. We put that up. The action of understanding, being aware of, being sensitive to, and vicariously experiencing the feelings, thoughts, and experiences of another. So we might actually kind of feel that, that pain a little bit, feel that hurt. But then, if God may have his way, we may go even deeper and feel compassion. A sympathetic consciousness of others' distress together with the desire to alleviate. You see, our sympathy, we go to the next slide, says, I'm sorry you hurt. Our empathy says, I hurt with you. But our compassion says, I'll do whatever it takes to stop your hurt. That is where God in his place lives. How many times in the scripture have you read where he says, and he was moved to compassion? His compassion went beyond just saying, oh man, that was really tough. Stinks. I'm sorry. Or, oh, I feel your pain. That's, man, that really, I can only imagine. But he went beyond that to say, no, I want more than just to experience or to know your pain. I want to do all that I can to stop it, to alleviate it. I mean, there's this passage in Mark, and you guys know it, it's where he kind of feeds the, um, right before he's feeding the 5,000, and it just says this. Then because so many people were coming and going, and they did not even have a chance to eat, right? So Jesus with the disciples, and there were people, and they're ministering left and right, and they were hungry. And so Jesus said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place, and let's get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. Interesting word there, solitary. Solitary means you want to be alone. But what happens? But many who saw them leaving, it's one of the difficult things of leaving on a boat on a lake. It's pretty much everybody sees where the boat's going. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he didn't say, now let's get back in the boat and try to go somewhere else where they're not. Right? Because he's hungry, he's tired, they've been ministering. And it says when he landed and he saw the crowd, he had compassion on them. His compassion said, I'm hungry, I'm tired, I don't feel like it, I don't want to. Everything is working against me because I'm, I've been doing good stuff and my good stuff has got me tired. Even good stuff needs, we need to take a break from, right? We all know this. But he says, because they were like sheep without a shepherd, because they needed him to lead them, to guide them, to teach them. He said, you know what, I could try to see if somebody else will do it. But he said, no, we'll do it. And he says, so he began teaching them many things. When our hearts are filled with compassion, we can't just sit still and just watch things happen. We can't just sit still and just wish things were different. I hope somebody steps up and does something about that. 
I hope somebody will meet that need. When we are moved with compassion, we then say, no, God, if this is something that you are really tugging on my heart about, then you're saying to me, this is something that you want me to get involved in. Something that I need to do. Even in this scene when Jesus fed the 5,000, he was hungry and tired, but he saw the needs of people and his compassion kicked in. Or you guys know, I'm not going to put it up on the screen, but you know this story very well, the story of Ruth and Naomi. Right? Naomi, her husband dies, Elimelech. Ruth and, and her, the other sister-in-law, forget Orpah. Knew I was going to come to me. All of them within a span of 10 years become widows. First Naomi, then Ruth and Orpah all become widows. And Naomi knows what that means. She knows that that means that it's going to be a very difficult life, especially for her. She doesn't have a son, right? There's no one to carry on that name. And, and the, the daughter-in-laws, they're, they're great, but she gives the knows that there's hope that if they leave and go back home, that they could remarry and, and get a husband and start. I mean, it was a very patriarchal society. That was just the kind of the way it was at that time. And so, you know, having a husband meant that you would kind of be provided for. And so she says, go. And even though they resist a little bit, Orpah's like, okay, <laughs> all right, I'm going to go. But we know the story. Ruth being moved with compassion for her mother-in-law, we know that verse says, don't urge me to leave you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. She says, may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you from me. We're moved and our hearts are moved with, with compassion. It's a, it's a love that, that can't just be held back. It's like a, it's like a mighty rushing river, and, and no matter how much you want to stand there with your hands and try to stop it, you can't. It just has to go. My prayer for us leading up to today was, God, move your church with compassion. I don't need more sympathetic people, though that's great. Empathetic people, though that's excellent. We need people who will put their feet to, move, to motion. We have some among us who have been moved with compassion. Several in this church who, whether it's been through foster care, adoption, safe families, have served in mighty ways and in great ways and in powerful ways. And many of you have, have, have known and have been a part of helping to support. And we you know that we have widows even amongst us. And we've loved on them. We've cared for them. And I'm sure there is more we could do, but here's the thing. There are tons of widows in our communities that we've probably never even spoken to. But I've asked Dave and Becky if they would come. And I've asked them to come and just share a little bit of their story. They are uh, just a shining example of those who have been moved with compassion um, to help kind of take this idea of the orphan extremely, extremely seriously and practically. So let's welcome them as they come and share.
Uh, my name is Dave, if you don't know me, this is my wife, Becky. Uh, we have three kids, uh, James, who is five, Jalen, who just turned four, and Sally, who has just turned one as well. And uh, Andy asked that we kind of just share our journey, uh, just some of the experiences that we've gone through, the difficult times, as well as the blessings as well. And then lastly, when he talks about the widows and the orphans and how we can serve, what are some practical things that people can do to help serve uh, in this area? So uh, my wife will kind of just go through some background. Good morning. So um, Dave and I both come from a background of having uh, our eyes open to kids at risk or vulnerable children. I have been in many orphanages all over the world, have served, have visited, have seen the need of true orphans. And um, I, I think just not only seeing them overseas and having a heart to, to help them, but also in the community. When I was in college, I did a lot of work with at-risk programs uh, for kids at risk um, after school and became not just involved at that program, but I found myself picking them up at their homes and giving their moms a break. And, um, and even as a teacher, I had foster kids in my classroom who became foster kids. And I saw a huge difference from the things they were dealing with before, their behaviors, their struggles, and they got out of a very toxic environment and got into a loving foster family and they came to school with shoes on that fit their feet and they became, they just, their whole demeanor changed because they were being loved on in a way they needed to be loved on and they were in after school programs and things that just supported them and I just, just witnessing these orphans and kids in our community and fostering in my own school and wishing that I could have been <laughs> their foster mom, it was planting seeds in my heart for someday. Dave also, as his family has been involved with Safe Families, and he's had just an exposure to that and seeing what that can do and how that can help kids that are in our own communities, not just across the world, which is also very important. Um, so we just see kids that just need to be loved. Um, so we got married six years ago, and when I met Dave, a lot of you know that he wanted to have 20 kids, and I... <laughs> soon found out that he didn't just mean by me, but he also, that he had a heart to either foster or adopt, which I did not find a lot of guys that were interested in at the time. And since my heart had been urged and kind of leaning that way, that was a huge, huge thing for me. And I was really excited about that. Um, but we didn't really see that being how we would start our family. We saw that as adding to our family. Um, about a, a year and a half into our marriage, we were, we were not trying to not get pregnant. We were hoping it would come along and it wasn't coming along. So we started to see doctors, and we had a horrible thing told to us that we had un I'm not cry, unexplained infertility, which is a very difficult thing because there's no answers. There's nothing you can do. It's just unexplained. So as we're working through that, we decided that we want to fill our home with children, and if they're not going to come for me right now or in our timing, what we thought, then we want to see what other children possibly could come into our home. We started to look into international adoption, first because I was always really excited to bring home a kid maybe from one of those orphanages that I visited um, or even domestic in, um, adoption but we found that most of the agencies that we talked to said that if we would get pregnant while in the process of adopting that all of everything would just be paused and stopped so it takes sometimes three to five years for an adoption internationally so all that time and effort and money would all be paused while we would have a baby and wait one year, and then we could resume. 
And that just seemed like it was hard for us to imagine having to wait all of that time to fill our house with children. So we found the foster care system to be the way to go so that we could bring kids into our home, love on them while we wait for God's plan to bring kids biologically, if that was his plan. So we had one a year and a half ago, or two years ago, we had just finished, uh, we, with, we were still working with doctors to see if we could get pregnant. We had a, a thing called an IUI done. Um, and we were on a vacation in Florida trying to get away. And um, we found out that time that I was, it did not work. And I was not pregnant. And it was devastating. And then a couple days later, so I was working through the grief. It was my birthday. We were zooming across Florida in a Mustang convertible. We got a call from the foster agency. Would we like to take a newborn baby boy home from the hospital? We immediately said, yes, we would. But we're in the middle of Florida right now, so we can't get there. So the next Monday, we picked up our now four-year-old Jalen. We picked him up from the hospital, and I became a mom for the first time, which is pretty cool. And we fell in love immediately. So he's still a foster child four years later. So the system is... Got a, there's a lot of challenges there. Um, four years later, we've had six foster kids from the ages of seven days old to 13 years old come into our home, and we've had the opportunity to love on them, care for them, eat some of their needs, and be stretched and challenged and depend on God in a lot of new ways <laughs> that we never imagined. Um, and now we have the three that Dave t- told you about, and I'm pregnant. So we were, that's pretty exciting. So we really trust that the kids that God wanted to be in our home, he brought to our home before we started a family. Would we have done all of this before if we would have gotten pregnant? We don't know. But we see that God had a plan that these kids, whether they Jalen and Sally, we don't know they're still foster kids, if they will be with us forever or not. But we are, we are confident that God has had a perfect plan. Um, so we'll, um, so some of the challenges um, of being foster parents specifically um, is you don't know who comes, who's going to come to your door. When you open that door, you know they're going to be 5 years old or 13 years old or 2 months old, but you don't know what they're coming with. And sometimes we've been really amazed and uh, like our 13-year-old foster daughter, how strong she was and how she just was able to work through a lot of her issues so well, and she blessed our lives in so many ways that we, so we never even imagined. Um, but you also don't know the trauma that they're going to deal with. Um, our, our one-year-old foster daughter, Sally, she was extremely drug-exposed um, in utero, and we picked her up after one month in the hospital going through withdrawal from drugs. So right now, if you meet her, she's the sweetest baby in the entire world. She'll smile at you, and she loves you, but we know that along with drug exposure like that will come probably cognitive delays and other things later on. So we just, some of the challenges are working through behaviors that are caused by different substances, exposures, and the, just the trauma of being separated from their birth families and, um, and how they express that in your home can be very, very challenging. Um, another challenge is just there's a lot of, you're never alone. You don't just bring them to a child and you raise them. There are caseworkers, there are licensing reps, there are judges who may or may not make tr- decisions that you uh, really think is wise. Um, there are nurses, there are therapists, there are a lot of people that are involved with just one child. So in that, we stay very busy with appointments. 
I see other moms taking their kids to the library and to the park and swimming and the zoo and Bella Boos. And I am taking my kid to TCFS to another screening because it's been three months and they have to be re-screened again to see how they're developing. So that can be really difficult. Um, we just stay very busy with making sure, which is also a blessing that they are being covered, that there are people in place to make sure that they are gonna be taken care of and that they're getting the help and support that they need. Um, another challenge, but can be a blessing, is that you don't just also take in that one child, you take in their bio, their whole family sometimes, and not physically, but emotionally, and sometimes you do have parent visits with, they have their parent visits, and they have sibling visits, and you're, you are connected with that birth family, which can be a really cool thing, too. You can pray for them, you can get to know them, um, and try to encourage them, and, um, and just keeping their birth, their family, their siblings part of your family can help your foster son or daughter to work through a lot of their issues inside. Um, we have found that with Jalen. We're very connected with his birth. He has two, he is, he's the youngest of six, but he has two other brothers that are his full siblings. And we meet with them, we're, try, we're supposed to meet with them twice a month, but we it's really hard. They live up by Wrigley Field. But they are an amazing family, and we try to keep them connected, and we know that will be very a blessing for them in the future. Um, one other last challenge I'll share is that um, sometimes we don't really get, because of the trauma that they've experienced, and some of the, their brain doesn't always function the way a normal developing child would, we get a lot of behaviors that are not very ideal. So the summer I had them in, some, in swim lessons, and I thought they were doing great compared to before. <laughs> and the teacher said, they did a great job today. But as we were leaving the pool, this woman stopped me and told me about how disruptive my kids were and how it just disrupted, disrupted her kid from learning and how it disrupted the whole class and why wasn't I there to help. And just, that was a really rough morning. Just getting the kids to school was really, or to summer lessons was really hard. It was just, some of the behaviors have just, this summer has been really hard. And what I needed in that moment was another mom to say, you got this, you, you're doing a great job, but said she completely, like, and I was the best, that was this for the rest of the day. I was like, why did she not have just told me good job and said she had to tell me and reinforce that it is, these kids are, can be kind of hard, but they're loving and beautiful and have come a long way. So I'll hand it to you. <clears throat> So I, I hope that you hear just from the challenges that my, my wife shared and just the emotional reaction that you see, you know, that's a challenge for me as a husband and as a dad as well. How do I help support my, my wife who's with these children all day, every weekend, never gets a break? You know, I go up, I go to work. I'm talking with adults, I interact with adults. I don't see my children but two hours in the evening before they go to bed. And she's with them all day, dealing with those experiences. So it's hard for me as a father and as a dad to help support my wife in those things, you know. And that's a challenge. You know, I, I hate to see my wife, you know, break down or cry and just be frustrated with things that are going on. Um, so it's important for me to be in tuned to what she's feeling. And I appreciate that she calls me during work, that she'll share about some behavioral things that are going on and she'll feel free to give me a call. Um, looking for opportunities for my wife to be able to get away and just be with some friends, be by herself, go, you know, go hang out on the evenings or on a weekend, and I take care of the kids. 
um, you know, ways to try to help bless her and support her, but that is a challenge for, for adults and for, especially for fathers and husbands when they see, you know, their significant other experiencing those things. Um, but with that, like she said, I mean, through the, our journey, you've heard a lot of the, the, the challenges, but man, we've had a lot of highs. Yeah, there are highs and there are some lows, and sometimes you just never feel like you're going to get out of it, uh, but it has been a big blessing. I mean, Jalen, James, each one of our kids, three kids, are unique in their own special way. I mean, think about it. James is our first one that we've adopted officially into our family. That's unique to him. Jalen was the first one to be our own son in our family and to be, uh, make us parents for the first time in our lives. That's unique to him. Sally, being the first girl in our family, you know, that's going to be a special, unique thing to her. And then obviously our newborn um, will have his own a unique experience as well. Um, so we have a lot of blessings, but like you see, we can't do this without support from our family and friends in the church. For example, whenever we get a placement, the first thing she does, she'll call me and say, do we want to take this child or not? The second, next, very next thing is she calls my mom, can we take this child or not? Because without her okay, it's impossible. I mean, without our parents, without my brothers, my sisters, and just other people that we know in the church, we couldn't do it. We could not be a blessing without them. So that is huge that people have support networks with them. Uh, the other thing, just opening up our eyes to the vulnerable and need around our community. You know, Andy will probably share some statistics um, about just the need that there is just in Illinois, Indiana, throughout our country and throughout the world of just people that need to have loving homes, um, people that are be willing to help support and take them in. Um, and we do see the hope for our children. Because they're in our family, they're in our church, they're cared for and they love for, we know that they're going to have a better life than what they would have had otherwise. And so that is a huge blessing, just to be able to have that, know, that knowledge and knowing that they're going to have a great future ahead of them. Um, and like Becky said, you know, we get to meet their families. You know, sometimes, like, like Jalen's, you know, biological or his brothers, you know, and their foster parents. And just having that relationship and that connection is such a huge blessing, and to be able to pray for them. Um, and then lastly, the other blessing is our support groups. You know, we have one that we are part of called Love Moves Us, who we, we go every month with. Um, and they, their slogan is, not everybody can foster or support, but everybody can help in some way. Um, and they've just been a huge blessing to us. Um, we have the Thompsons and his family, uh, Kayla and David, um, also support that group and volunteer with that group. Uh, so it's a great way for them to get involved. So lastly, we'd like to kind of leave, what are some practical things that, that we can do as a church body to help support, um, you know, the vulnerable uh, when it comes to adoptive and foster families? One of the first practical needs, you know, whenever we get a placement, the first couple weeks are extremely hard. You know, there's a lot of transition going on. There's a lot of uncertainty going on. So just providing a simple meal, you know, within that first two weeks can go a long way and leaves a lot of stress and takes away a lot of some of that anxiety. Babysitting is huge. Now with foster families, it's a little bit challenging because we've got to go through background screenings and you have to be a certain age, so there's some requirements that are involved. So you can't just have anybody just come babysit. But like my wife shared, just being able to have a break, for us to be able to go on a date night, um, those are huge opportunities for us to help keep our marriage strong, to give us a break from our kids because this is a lot of trauma and a lot of work 24-7. Uh, 
So those are great opportunities and ways for people to serve. Um, like Love Moves Us or other su uh, adoptive supportive groups, great opportunity. You know, like I mentioned, the Thompsons and the Deucings. You know, every month they come and they volunteer and they watch our kids so that we can have an opportunity to interact with other adoptive and foster families, share our experiences, grow and learn on how to interact with our kids, how to help with our kids and their emotions and their trauma. What a huge blessing it is. And then lastly, like she shared, encouraging. You know, when we're in the store and we're in a restaurant and our kids are not behaving well, we know that. You know, I don't need to have other people stare at us and, and sneer at us and kind of give us some bad looks. We know their behaviors, we know where they come from, but they don't know that. So always keep that in mind, be encouraging, be supportive. You know, that's probably one of the biggest things you can do, because it is a challenge. Um, and so in conclusion, like Andy said, how do we support, you know, those that are vulnerable? You know, everybody can serve in some way or some means, um, even if you can't necessarily adopt or foster. But it's been a great experience for us. We would not change it for the world. We love what we do, and we love our children. And we could not do it without our family, our friends, and our church. So thank you. So there you have it. Um, I think, you know, we, it's a beautiful thing. It's, it's of God, it's a difficult thing, right? And, and I've had friends um, who have had really difficult times with um, even trying to honor God and do what God's called and, and to have to wrestle with the difficulty of, of, of some, some young people um, and, and some of the trauma and some of the difficult things. Um, but then you end up with some of the blessings. And, you know, many of you know our oldest son, Ilya, right? And, and to be able to see that young man from where he came from when he came to us at 14 to this 24-year-old, 23-year-old, he's somewhere in there, um, you know, recent college grad and working two jobs and is about to move into his first apartment and, and has found a church there in Peoria where he is that he's, that he's attending and he loves and is letting mom coach him up on his financial peace university stuff so that he can handle his finances responsibly, right? I mean, there's, 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 there's difficulty, but there's blessing. And when we move with compassion, we're willing to move through those difficulties to help see someone, whether it's a young person or whether it's a widow, whether it's just somebody that you meet with once a week just to eat lunch with who may not have opportunity to get out of their homes or may not have opportunity to connect with others because their spouse that they may have been married to for who knows how many years um, is no longer with them and how lonely that may feel. We have to be sensitive to that. So real quick, as, as a wrap-up, Dave said, I want to just do a little bit of, of um, some, some statistics that I think are, are going are gonna to help us. We're going to try to fly through it um, real quick. But... Um, so this kind of slide, though the Pew Research Center does a lot of, they're kind of like the Barna Group and others that do a lot of, you know, Gallup Poll do a lot of kind of research, and so they have a whole section on religion and public life, and so they talk about, they did a study in a, kind of the religious landscape, right, of a, of a state. And so here's Illinois. So there's 71% of Illinois that have, Illinoisans who have identified themselves as Christian. Now from that, you've got this breakdown. Of that 71%, 20% would call themselves evangelical Christians. So I had to look like, what's the difference? It's like 
evangelical Protestant and mainline, what's the difference? So it says this, that evangelical Christians, this, they have one belief is that the Bible is inerrant, it is without error. A second belief is that the only way to salvation is through belief in Jesus Christ. The third belief is that um, individuals must accept salvation for themselves. And then a fourth belief is that there is a need to spread the gospel. So that's what makes an evangelical Protestant away from a, maybe a mainline Protestant who may have some variation of that. We don't have time to go into what those variations will look like. So it kind of sounds good. So I'm like, okay, I like this idea. So let's talk about the 20% of evangelical Protestants, right, that we have in Illinois. So if we go to the next one, that's Illinois. We got some Indiana folks. We'll go back to that. Indiana's a little more Christian than we are in Illinois. Um, keep your jokes to yourself, please, because I already know what you're thinking. Um, but we have 72%, or sorry, 72% Indiana, 31% are evangelical Protestant versus the 20% in Illinois. So there's, okay, Indiana, you guys got it going on a little bit, right? So what does that look like in numbers? Here we go. Let's go back to the, uh, to the Illinois side. So in Illinois, there's 12,700,381 people in the state, okay? 71% identified as Christians, meaning 9 million people call themselves Christians. Of those 9 million people, 20% identify as evangelicals, meaning 1.8 million identify themselves as evangelical, meaning they believe in the things that we espouse we believe in. Okay, got it? Remember that number. Let's look at in Indiana. Indiana, 72%. So there's 6 million people in Indiana, 6.7 million. 72% identify as Christians. That means that there's 4.8 million. 31% as evangelicals. That means there's 1.5 million, according to this study, and again, Give or take, we don't know the exact of this. All right, so that's what we got. So what does that mean? There's no slide for this. I just want you guys to just listen and hear me on this one. In Illinois, there are 17,920 students, young people in the foster care system, meaning either foster care or able to adopt. 17,920 currently, as of today, according to adoptuskids.org, okay? If only 1% of the 1.8 million evangelical Christians who call themselves evangelical in Illinois, 1%, that would be 18,000 kids that would be out of the foster care or adoption system in the state. There are 17,920. If 1% took James 127 and said this religion that God sees is pure and undefiled, that this is so important to him, that we care for the orphans and that we care for the widows, if only 1% cared for the orphan in that way, there would be no young people in either a non-Christian home or not have a home at all in Illinois. In Indiana, there are 9,294 kids currently in the foster care system or in, or in adoption, but 9,000 total. Here's the math on the state that's a little more Christian than Illinois. If 0.63% of the evangelical Christians took James 127 seriously, that would be 9,400. We would have no kids in the foster care or adoption system in the state of Indiana 
if 0.63% said, I will step up and I will do it. So then if 1% in Illinois is taking care of our foster kids, and if 0.63% in Indiana are taking care of our kids, then what do the rest of us do? There are 600,000 widows in Illinois. There are 322,000 widows in Indiana. There are enough evangelical believers in these two states to care for all of them, to love on them like they've not been loved on before, to take them in our home. Yes, it's hard. It is difficult. But like I tell my kids all the time, anything that is worth anything is usually hard. I played a stupid sport. It was hard. And I got up every day and went to practice knowing that the coach's job was to kick my butt. And I would come back each and every day saying, bring it on. Yet there are so many times when we think about difficult things in our life and we say, I just can't do it. And God says, okay, you probably can't, but I can. So if you would allow me to use you, I will show you, I will be there for you, I will equip you, I will give you the support you need, you just say yes. Church, it can be done, it can be changed in our time. A couple of resources and I'm going to wrap up. And we put up the, uh, the book. So there's a book called Care for Widows by Brian Croft and, and Austin Walker. I don't get a chance to really unpack this as much as I would love to right now, but this is a great resource. This is a great book. If you want real practical ideas on how do, what does that mean? We talk about care for widows. What, is, what does that mean? Because we, we look at maybe the ones that we have in our church body and we say, yeah, we, we help them when they need and we, and we do these things. But I'm talking about there are hundreds of thousands outside of these walls that don't have the direct influence of the church unless we in our communities and our neighborhoods notice those women who are out trying to push their lawnmower, right, by themselves or, or in the, you know, snow trying to, you know, make a little pathway just so they can get to the garbage can. And we see that and we walk on by and we're saying, no, there are practical, simple ways in our own communities where if we kind of open our eyes, you know, I always say, you know, one of the biggest tragedies we've ever had was the invention of the attached garage. I know. See, thank you. Because now you don't even have to walk from your house to the garage where you would actually see your neighbor and interact with. Pull right into your garage, right into your house. You literally have blinders on from the time you pull in the street into your building to you're in your boat and then back out again. We don't even get to know our neighbors anymore. Now, granted, I'm not going to blame the garage. It's an easy one to blame. I blame the garage because I'm not a real social person sometimes. So I'm like... Darn garage. <laughs> but anyway, get to know our neighbors. One of the, thing, one of the points in the book is you just got to begin to talk and get to know people and hear stories because then you know who to help. The second one is this, and this is a book that I, I have here, um, and it's called A Small Town Big Miracles. I read the whole book a couple times. Uh, it takes about an hour and a half, two hours to read. If you're, a, if you're a fast reader, if you're a slow reader, it probably takes two hours and ten minutes. It's a really easy read. It's a true story about a church in Possum Trot, Texas. Median income, 30,000. 
roughly the size of Living Word, 150 people, 200 people. As a church, took in 72, adopted 72 children. You can look it up on YouTube. It became a whole national story. They were on Oprah. They were on CNN, TNBC. I mean, it was a whole thing. This was, this was just in the late 90s. But it tells the story. And I love this book because it does not just tell, oh, we took in kids and we thought we were doing the right thing. No, they go into detail. It was hard. One family took 11 kids because they could not imagine not having all the siblings together. And then one of the other families in the church who had also taken in four kids, both of them died just months apart. And so the kids that they had now became without parents a second time. And so they took those kids as well. Plus the two they already had. It's a great story, but it talks, a really, it talks a lot about the difficulties. They don't sugarcoat anything. They, they say it's a struggle. It's hard. It will kick your butt. But like I said, I remember going through difficult things and saying, bring me more, because those are the things that make us stronger, and those are the things that keep us on our knees. Man, when it gets easy, I don't know if you're like me. Maybe I shouldn't be giving all my business out, but when things are going well, you know, it's kind of one of those, all right, God, good to see you, glad, I'll see you later. When things are going difficult, it's like, oh, now I'm on my knees. <laughs> now I'm laying prostrate in front of the floor saying, God, if you don't show up, everything's going to fall apart. And I think God wants us more on our face to say, yeah, <laughs> God, if you don't show up, it may all fall apart. So I want to challenge us, and I want to wrap up, and I want to ask the, the uh, worship team if they'd come. Sorry, we're a little bit over, but I just want us to just to sing, um, just I Surrender All, because I think as we just take a moment to just contemplate, and I didn't unpack um, James 127 as much as I need, but we just, I just want you guys to just grasp, and I know you know this, so this isn't about head knowledge as much as this is about heart knowledge, about move to passion. Not everyone can foster. Not everyone can adopt. And the statistics tell us not everyone has to. Now, somebody does, 1%, 0.63%. I mean, obviously, everybody's looking at somebody else saying, ooh, you should do it, <laughs> instead of saying me. But not everyone can do it. Not everyone has the patience to do it. The disposition. I mean, there are really some giftings that God really does have to give us to be able to do it. But all of us can wrap our arms around and support those that do. We may not all be able to adopt, but we could all find someone or, or talk to someone who may be a widow or who a widower and, and spend time with them. Give up that valuable resource that we have, the most valuable, which is time. We can make money again. We can give money away and we can make it again. But there's that one resource of time that when you give that away, you want to make sure that what you're doing with it is valuable because that time you don't get back. You can't work hard enough to get time back. And so what we're investing our time in matters. The people we invest our time in matters. Church, let us love well the way God loved us. Let us minister to one another well the way our God ministers to us in our moment of need. 
Let us remember that there is a religion that our God accepts as pure and faultless and holy, and it is that we care for the orphan, for the fatherless, for the widow. That we don't just say, oh man, that must stink, but don't worry, my heart's with you. But our time goes, that our lives go, that our hearts go. So I want to pray, and we're just going to finish with this with this song. And I'm, I don't know what the Lord is speaking to you, and, and however he does and whatever he does, I'm not, I don't feel like I need to be a, a, a vacuum salesman and try to sell you something. Holy Spirit can speak for himself. But I do want to challenge us as a body of believers, as those evangelical Protestants, that the world is hurting. There are young people, there are elderly people who need us. We got to step out of our little world sometime in order to enter into the world of someone else. And it's never convenient, it's never easy, but it's always worth it. So Lord God, I just thank you so much, God, for today. God, thank you for the word that you've given us. God, thank you for Dave and Becky, Lord God, and for them being vulnerable and sharing with us, Lord God. God, how you're building their family up, Lord God, and it's not easy, but God, if it was easy, then, Lord God, we wouldn't rely on you and trust you, and God, I pray for them, Lord God, that as they continue to rely on you and trust you more and more, that you would show yourself faithful. Lord God, I just thank you right now, God, for those who you are pressing upon their hearts even now. Maybe it's time to look into this. Maybe my kids are now older, or they're gone, they're off to college, they're whatever. Maybe, just maybe, I, I can't imagine starting over with the little one again, but, but maybe, just maybe. Lord God, speak to us this morning. God, make clear what your heart is for us, Lord God. God, that everyone would walk from this place, Lord God, with just an inkling in their heart that, God, maybe you're beginning to speak some truth to us about how you want us to care for the vulnerable. Lord God, we ask right now that as we sing this song, I Surrender All, it may be the quietest song in the place because, God, if we can't sing it with truth and sincerity, God, that we surrender ourselves to you, that however you want to use us, Lord God, that we would be okay with it. As scary as it may seem, as difficult as it may be, that when we give ourselves to you, God, that you will put us where you want us, where you've equipped us. And that may be at our neighbor's house knocking on the door saying, hey, is there some yard work I can do? And that may be seeing the young man, you know, or down the street or, or volunteering for an organization or maybe even going into foster care or adoption themselves. God, our ears are open. We ask that you speak in Jesus' name.